So a uh, special guest this morning, uh, and special for me is I'm taking Father's Day off. Um, I'm here, but I'm, I'm not speaking. We're going to let another father actually speak. Um, and I've already, I have, we know when you do two services, when you get to the second one, I've cheated. I already got to hear the message, and I knew it was going to be great, but it was, is, it's excellent. You're going to be challenged and inspired today. Uh, Lance Ford is here, and, and some of you know Lance. Lance spoke uh, a couple years ago when we were at the other building, and, uh, but Lance has written a number of books uh, as well. Uh, he's also written a, a book called Missional, The Missional Quest with Brad Briscoe, and many of us have read that book. Um, he actually just recently finished a, a new book, which is uh, Next Door As It Is in Heaven, which he'll talk a little bit about. Uh, and I'll tell you right now, because I can't tell you how many people came up in between services because Lance really didn't plug himself. But if you want this book, and you may want it after you hear Lance speak, you can get it on Amazon. And in fact, he said, you said on Kindle right now, it's like a steal. So uh, unless you're old school and you want to smell the pages, anybody like that? You're like, Kindle's great, but I want something physical. So that'll cost you more money. Okay, that's the luxury tax for the book. But anyway, so but, but what I love about Lance, and you'll, you'll get to know as you hear him speak, is Lance just doesn't talk about living on mission. Lance actually lives on mission. He actually loves people in his neighborhood and wherever God plants him. And so you're going to hear stories about that. But you'll be inspired and challenged to actually start to see your neighborhoods differently. Does this sound familiar? Like maybe we talked a little bit about that topic. And because that's the direction that God is moving our church, I think that's the, the direction God's moving the church to reach people more effectively. So would you say good morning and welcome Lance Ford as he comes and speaks this morning. Thanks. Well, good morning. Well, um, yeah, I was with you guys a couple of years ago, right before you moved into the new digs. So it's good to be here with you. We had a good time in the first service. Uh, tell you just a little bit uh, about myself. I'm, yeah, I'm a father too. So my kids are 26, 27, and 28. And uh, great kids, our oldest, our son, and two daughters. And uh, so, But I won't be spending Father's Day with them because my flight leaves at 12.59 tomorrow morning. So I get the epitome of the red eye back to Florida. So, But I, uh, my wife and I just moved to Florida last summer, and I've been building a house for about the last seven months. I, any guys here ever build your own house? I'm not talking about being a con, I'm talking about actually swing the hammer. Anybody do that? So I had a full head of hair. I had a mullet and everything before I started it. Um, but uh, we're, we're moving in in a couple of weeks. It's the second house I've built. Uh, after the first one, I said I'd never do it again. And you know the old adage, never say never. But man, this one's it. I'm buying a burial plot in the backyard, and I'm going to go ahead and put my tombstone up, and this is it. So I'm telling my wife, I'm saying, as your first husband, this is it, you know, so, uh, but it's been fun, um, it's been cathartic, but when I got off the plane Thursday, when I got here, because it, we're up in the panhandle of Florida, I got off the plane, I immediately called my wife, I said, oh, I remember what no humidity feels like, so this is why everybody's in SoCal, so. It feels good. I wish I could take it back with me. But uh, one of the one, the reason that we moved to Florida is because her parents are there, and and we've planted churches and pastored for for 31 years of marriage. And so uh, now, for the last few years, I do a lot of traveling, and I, I can do what I do from anywhere. And so it's her turn to get to call a shot. So I, she she wanted to moved near her parents, so we did, and it's been great, but really, the, the only negative of the whole thing that my wife and I would say was that we had to leave uh, our neighborhood, 
in uh, Kansas City where we had lived for the last seven years. And uh, our first seven years of being empty nesters. And that our time in Kansas City was just wonderful because it was the greatest experiences we ever had in a neighborhood because when we moved in there like never before, we went in with intentionality. And we said, not only do we want to get to know our neighbors, we feel like we have come to the understanding that we didn't just show up into a neighborhood, but we've been sent to a neighborhood. That the Lord has sent us to this neighborhood. And that's a real important thing for us to realize is the places that we live, work, play, just the rhythms of our life. We didn't just happen to end up there. The Lord sends us. We are his sent people. We are the missionary people of God. Now, we define missionaries as the people that go over there, the people that are in Haiti or you know, Sri Lanka or wherever they might be. And we've said those are the missionaries. We're just Christians. We're all to be missionaries. Anybody say amen? And I can say it. My son is a missionary. My son's a missionary in Asia. So I'm not, I'm, I'm all about missionaries as we've always known it. But one of the things that we need to realize as the people of God is that we're, we're, we're really not, here's, here's a hint, we're really not Americans. Okay? We're not, we're not American Christians. We're Christian Americans. Because we're actually heavenly people. We are from another nation. We are from the heavenly nation. Amen? And he has sent us down. And so, so uh, we've got a short time to do what he's called us to do. But the, the thing I found about, about neighboring, and I, I was a youth pastor at 19. So my whole adult life, I'm 53 now. So my whole life has been ministry, vocational ministry and such. But man, it's, and I, I, I think that we can say this, those of us that have had a few rodeos, as we would say, uh, in just life, isn't it amazing, the older you get, you're like, um, it's kind of like I feel like the less I know. And even better than that, the less I want to know. You know, like Bob Seeger said, I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then, right? So, but I'm finding, and I work with church planters a lot, I work with, with, with existing church staffs, helping them, and I'm, I'm finding more and more and more that there's less and less to tell. You just don't need that much. Really, the gospel's pretty simple. It really is. There's not much there. I'm telling you, look, if, just, if you have a Bible, just look at it right now. The four gospels, there's not a whole lot there. And most of it's repetitive. So there's even less there. And Jesus said, this is enough. This will do you really good, right? So we try to, it takes preachers like me to complicate stuff. So it's not that complicated. Mostly it's untried. So I want to hopefully decomplicate some of this stuff a little this, this, this morning with you. And we're going to talk about neighboring. And here's a very familiar passage. But I, I think that maybe when we're done with this passage that you might see some different angles maybe that, that you, you haven't seen before. So we're going to look at the, the passage that we've always called the story of the great the parable of the, of, of the Good Samaritan. So we have Jesus here, and Jesus is about to have an encounter with one of the religious lawyers. And this guy 
is going to bring a question, a couple of questions to Jesus, and he's making one of the mistakes that you see throughout the Gospels of people walking up to Jesus and asking him questions. Because <laughs> Jesus always answers questions with questions. So I'm just telling you, your first thousand years in heaven, <laughs> let, let somebody else ask the questions, because you're probably going to get questions fired back at you. So Jesus was great about that. That's the way he would answer questions by asking a question. So this says that, that he, uh, wait, 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 I'm, I'm looking through, I got to get to the, to the wrong, we got the right passage up there. So we got this lawyer, it says, behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him. Now notice this, first of all, he's going to tempt Jesus, really? Jesus has already defeated the devil 40 days of fasting and beats Satan on all of his temptations. But Johnny Cochran's going to step up and he's going <laughs> to tempt Jesus here. So he says, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The big question, right? What do I do to inherit eternal life? A couple of things that's really interesting here. He says, what do I do in order to get eternal life? And that's the big question. So we read this usually. We read this and we say, okay, so this guy's asking Jesus, how do I go to heaven? How do I go to heaven? But that's not the question. First of all, he wants to know what kind of works he can do to get a hold of eternal life. And Jesus then goes into this whole diatribe with him. Well, we know Jesus is not telling him how to get to heaven by works, right? Because you don't get to heaven by good works. Amen? Now, i got to tell this, you guys what I told the first service. I, I went to a charismatic Bible college in 1980, and a long time ago, and I mean, and I, I pastored Pentecostal churches and everything, but right now in all my work and my travels, I work with a lot of Baptists, so it's always good to be with some Pentecostals, and if you don't say amen every once in a while, or a little Shundai, or Selamahonda, or just a little, get, a little something, then I'm just going to shut her down. So, and you can just go ahead and beat, beat all the Methodists to the restaurants today. So, uh, <laughs> so, so, help me, okay? <clears throat> if you like it, if you don't, you can boo, whatever. That'd be fun, too. That'd be, that'd be a twist. So, so, here the deal is, is that this guy's asking this question about eternal life. And Jesus starts answering him in ways that he's not, he's getting more than he bargained for, which is what people usually did. So, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says in him, well, what's written in the law? What does, how do you read it? And he answering said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus answers him. You got it. You answered right. Do this and you will live. Interesting. Interesting. He didn't say, yeah, do that, and you'll go to heaven when you die. He said, do this, and you will live. Now, here's what's great about this, is this word live in the Greek. Now, here's, here's the thing about uh, preachers and pastors. Usually, if you want to make a point, you just say, in the Greek, it says. <laughs> Whether you know it says that in the Greek or not, you say, well, in the Greek, here's what this means. But it really does. Okay, so it's the Greek word. And any of you guys that have been around for long, you remember like back in the 80s, in the early 90s, especially in charismatic Pentecostal circles, the big word was zoe. Remember that? I mean, there's a lot, a lot of sermons on zoe. We say, no zoe, no goe. <laughs> Jesus' name. Right? 
It's just like you, you got to prophesy in King James English for it to really be legitimate, you know. <laughs> hey, God tells you to go across the street. That has not had the impact of, thus saith the Lord, yea, verily. <laughs> right? So it's just, you know, it's different. But, but the word zoe was a good spiritual word back then, and it's a good word we need to recapture now. Because what the word zoe, really the definition, the Greek definition of it, really means life as God has it. It's heavenly life. Now, you want to get some of that? How many of you want to go into heavenly life? So it's the, it's, it's the God kind of life. So Jesus says, yeah, you got it. Love God with your heart, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, you got it. Do this, and you will enter into the God kind of life. You will enter into the Zoe. See, we, we, we think heaven's something that's over after we die. I love what Dallas Willard said. He said, I'm not trying to get people into heaven after they die. I'm trying to get people into heaven while they're still alive. And that's what Jesus was about. See, most of us think Jesus preached the gospel. He didn't preach the gospel. He preached the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. The inbreaking reign of God. Not then, right now. So love, mercy, kindness, justice, all this stuff that Jesus came in, he's bringing the edict of the king. He's bringing the kingdom of heaven in, and he wants us to go into it, and he wants us to bring others into it too. Amen. So this is the life of God that he's calling us into, and so this is the whole issue that Jesus has with this guy. He says, look, yeah, do this and you will live. Well, that wasn't good enough for this, this particular religious lawyer. He says, uh, well, you know, I'm really not digging that. So he, he wants to know a little more. You guys may have to forward that for me because I don't think this is, this is not getting a good angle. There we go. But he, and this is the lawyer again, he says, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's very interesting. How is this justifying himself? How is he justifying himself by asking the question, who is my neighbor? He's really wanting just to etherealize that neighbor term. Yeah, but really, at the end of the day, who's my neighbor? You know, who's my neighbor? You know, go ask Mr. Rogers, I don't know, you know. So, Jesus, it's almost like the thought bubble on Jesus' head is like, oh, man, I'm really glad you asked that. Jesus has kind of got the guy set up. Because Jesus re is reading ahead. He knows what this guy's where this guy's headed with this. And so the guy tries to justify himself, get himself off the hook, etherealize it by saying, yeah, but really, who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, okay, well, I'll tell you who your neighbor is. I'll answer your question. And then now we get this passage that we're familiar with. Jesus answered, he said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. Now, Jesus is speaking to a group of Jewish listeners. And so by using the priest, I mean, this is the, like the, the holiest guy in the neighborhood, the holiest guy in the community. So this is, the, you know, the senior leader, the senior pastor walks by. And he saw him, and he passed by on the other side. And then a Levite, so a young seminary guy comes by. He was at the place, came, looked at the situation, looked at the guy, passed by on the other side. 
Now Jesus, as so often he would do with his stories, he introduces a scandalous issue here by, because what he's about to do, he's about to make the hero of the story one of the most derided, hated type of people in the Jewish mind, a Samaritan. So he's about to make a Samaritan a hero to a, Jew, uh, a Jewish audience. And, and, and it's almost impossible for us to emphasize how scandalous this would be. It would, seriously, I, the best thing I've ever been able to come up with, it would almost be like saying, and this, this ISIS army dude comes by. What? So this ISIS guy comes by. This radical Muslim dude comes by as he journeyed, and he came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. What? So he's, he, he's got their ear, to say the least. You guys go ahead and forward that for me because it's just not going. Let's go to the next, next passage. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence, gave it to the host, too far. Let's go back. I didn't do that. Go one more. Okay. And he, uh, no, 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 no. Like I said, doing things simple is always better. Yeah, just, there we go. Okay. Is this where we were? Okay. So he departed, took out two pence, gave them to the host, and said in him, take care of him. So he, t he basically, he's at the Holiday Inn Express. He pulls out his American Express card. He hands it to the guy. He says, hey, I've got, most scholars say that this guy probably was a business guy. And so he said, I'll be back, and I'll settle up with you, and I'll take care of the guy when I get back. So he leaves the guy, but he takes care of the guy, he immediately pours in care, and then he does some aftercare with the guy. So Jesus says, so which of these three, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, which do you think was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? Now, do you notice something about that question that's really interesting? Because Jesus flips the script. Because the lawyer in justifying himself has asked the question, yeah, but who's my neighbor? Jesus tells this story and he flips the script. He says, the issue is not who is your neighbor. The issue is, who is the neighbor? Who was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? Jesus is saying, you're asking the wrong question. Are you going to be a neighbor? Are you going to be this type of a neighbor? Because a neighbor that loves God with her heart, soul, and strength will love his neighbor as himself and be the epitome of what a real neighbor is all about. Well, so the guy answers, he says, uh, well, the one that showed mercy, and Jesus says, got it, go and do likewise. And what was the beginning of the question? What was the question the guy had originally asked? What do I do to inherit eternal zoe? And Jesus says, do this, and you will live. Now, this is a key for us, folks. This is a real key for us to enter into the God kind of life. When my wife and I had first moved into the neighborhood in, in uh, Kansas City, there was a lot of things that, that, that we did to intentionally get to know our neighbors, and we made lots of connections and, and just some really beautiful things and some beautiful stories and just some wonderful life really started coming out of it. 
But after about four years, there was a, uh, we lived around a, on a crossroads, uh, and our house was one of the corner houses, and directly across the street from us was, a, was another house that, uh, that was occupied by a couple of guys uh, named Doug and Troy. Doug and Troy were a couple. They'd been together for like 25 years. They lived in the neighborhood for, I think, 12 or 15 years at that point. And in everything that we'd ever done to try to get to know neighbors and try to connect with other people and everything, Doug and Troy just, there were barriers up. I, come to I found out firsthand in some conversation at some point from them that, that there were some stories that, that had happened to them. Um, actually, Christians had really hurt them in lots of ways. And so there was lots of walls up. Like they knew what I'd do, who I was, and everything. And so I, it was impenetrable. I mean, we, could, we just never could really break through with Doug and Troy. Well, our neighborhood, at that point, uh, Doug and Troy put their house up for sale. And our neighborhood at that point was mostly occupied by, uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of lesbian couples, a lot of gay couples, some senior citizens, and some young couples, young families. And literally, as far as we knew, there, were n there was no one that was right my wife and I's age, kind of in our new, new empty nesters and people that we could connect with and at, at that level. And so Sherry, my wife, she starts really praying, hey, when, uh, you know, the Lord bring someone that Lance and I can really connect to to buy Doug and Troy's house. And this becomes a huge issue to her. So she is fervently praying, praying. She's talking about it all the time, you know. You know, she'd be walking through the house, and she's like putting her hand up at Doug and Troy. The Lord, bring, you know, bring a, a nice Susie and Bob or, you know, somebody, you know, da -da, you know, and she's so, so all the way talking about it, talking about it, talking about it. So finally, their house sells. Sold sign goes up about three weeks later. Um, moving vans come in one night. Sherry grabs her purse and her keys, and she goes, hey, I'm going down to the to the grocery store Wills went to. She says, I'm going to get a gift basket. And she says, and you're going to take it over there tomorrow. Find out if my prayers got answered. Meet the new neighbors. She's an introvert, so I have to do all the extrovert stuff, right? So she, so she comes home. she got this stuff. And she says, okay. She says, tomorrow. She says, man, I hope, I hope it's someone that we really, you know, because I've prayed. I just know the Lord's going to answer my prayer. And, you know, so the next morning, you know, she, she here, go, go. Go, go find out if my prayers got answered. So I walk across the street. This is the house. I knock on the door. Guy answers. So the guy's probably 63, 64 years old. And I'm thinking, first part of Sherry's prayer didn't get answered. <laughs> he has an earring, a little ponytail. But I'm like, hey, well, the dude abides, man, so he's probably cool. So... Uh, Next thing, uh, I introduce myself. I hand him this basket. Hey, my wife and I live across the street. Just want to welcome you to the neighborhood. And uh, he says, oh, really, you know, very gracious. Oh, man, I appreciate it and everything. Thank you very much. Uh, man, I wish my partner was here. In my mind, I'm going, most guys don't call their wives their partner. So I'm like, and uh, in my mind, I'm kind of like kind of grinning, like, yeah, I don't think Sherry's prayer really got answered here. I don't think. And, uh, and then he says, he says, he said, my partner, Richard, works for Delta. He's in London right now. And, and uh, I'm just like hearing this big wah, wah, you know, and, and like, man, I dread going back. Sherry may want her basket back or, you know, I don't know, you know, give it back, you know. 
Um, and so uh, that's what's kind of going on in my thought bubbles, you know. And, and so we start having a conversation. It's going really good. And, and he says, uh, I'm a ret- I've retired. And, oh, really? Well, what would you do? Uh, well, I worked for the, uh, I was an IRS agent for 35 years. Yeah, every time I say that, that's where everybody goes, hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just like, whoa, don't audit me, man. You know, I mean, it's just, you feel weird. It's kind of like the Gestapo or some guy going, oh, I used to work for Hitler, you know, but that was a long time ago, you know. You just feel weird when someone tells you I was an IRS agent. And so, or I did anyway, so... We talk a little bit, and then it kind of comes back to me. He asked me, so, so what do you do? And you can ask any pastor, anybody that's been in ministry, you can be having a great conversation with someone on an airplane, whatever, until they ask you what you do. And so I've traveled enough. I have these conversations enough. I've kind of figured out the, how to kind of deflect or buy time or change the subject or whatever. So he says, so what do you do? And so I said, well, I work for a nonprofit. You know, yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Well, that's great. Uh, so he's peeling back a little more. So, 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 what, what, what do you do? What, what, what area do you focus on? And so I'm like, okay, well, I got another card for that. Uh, um, we, we uh, I work in community transformation. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, next, uh, you know, how about those royals, man? You know, uh, but now he's. Oh, really? Tell me more about that. Like, what sector? So, and now I'm like, yeah, this, this is it's not going to work. So, so I said, uh, I said, well, I, I, I was a pastor for 20 years, and now I, and I got to that point in the conversation. I mean, barely got that out of my mouth. I was a pastor, and now I, and his face just dropped. And a smile drops off his face. And he said, oh, so are you one of those Christians that hate people like me? And um, I said, no, Jesus loved tax collectors. <laughs> true, true story. <laughs> and, and so, and, and, and I'm like, thinking, I don't know where that came from, but man, I'm thinking that was the Holy Spirit, and that was, that was pretty good. You know, but I didn't smile when I said it. I just like, you know, it's one of those guy stare downs, you know, like the first one that speaks loses the the negotiation. So I'm just like, I'm just going to let that float out there for a minute. You know, Jesus loves tax collectors. And uh, and and, and he, he's not smiling either. So I'm like going, maybe that wasn't so good. And uh, so, but then all of a sudden, we're just looking at each other. It probably was eight seconds, and it felt like a minute and a half, you know. And but but then this this little grin starts coming across his face, and then he just smiles and laughs. And I laughed because he knew what I just did, and he knew I knew what I just did <laughs> in that conversation. But what what happened in it? Something really amazing because he knew what I was saying is I'm not defining you by that. I am not going to define you by your, by who you are, by what you've done on the surface, and or what I consider your brokenness or your sin or whatever. I don't define you that way. 
I'm going to define you as someone that's radically loved by God. Amen. Amen. And if we would do that more as Jesus representatives on this earth, I think people would be a lot more open to our message. Because I never, in all the Gospels, I've never seen Jesus ever initiate a relationship in a conversation with someone defining them by their sin. In fact, I can show you example after example after example where he showed, I accept you as a human being and I want to I want to spend some time with you before he ever got to their issues that he felt like. Hey, Zacchaeus, you sorry tax collecting sinner, get down here. No. Hey, Zacchaeus. Uh, yes, sir. Hey, man, I'd like to have dinner with you. Wow. Woman at the well. Married five times. Shacking up, as my mom would say. But then my mom would say, bless her heart. <laughs> right? <laughs> You say anything as long as you say bless their heart at the end of it, right? <laughs> that whore, bless her heart. <laughs> it's my mama. Uh, so, you know, so Jesus said, you know, he, he's with the woman at the well and everything, and, you know, and he's a rabbi, and he's a Jewish man. He's alone with this Samaritan woman. And here's the deal. Every good Jew, the first thing in the morning, every Jewish man would wake up and he'd pray, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a dog, I'm not a woman, and I'm not a Samaritan. I mean, it was bad. It was some vile thinking. And so Jesus is breaking all the rules. This Samaritan woman knows he's a rabbi by reputation. And he says, hey, can I get a drink? You... you, you you want me to give you a drink, a, a, a Samaritan, a Samaritan woman, a woman of reputation, and out of my, out of my drinking utensils, you, you, you would, wow, her heart just opens up. We see example after this, example after example after example. For, for some reason, we as Christians, we think we always have to start relationship at confrontation, confronting people, you know, with their issues, with their sins, with their, you just don't see, you see Jesus being so confident of the love of God inside him. All oh, the love of God in me is going to swallow up all your sin. I just need to get to know you. I just need to have a relationship with you. I, I just need to be a neighbor to you and invite you into this Zoe that I'm living in. Amen? So that's, this is the approach that Jesus had. And look, I am confident that this is the approach that Jesus calls us to in our neighborhoods. So what we started doing, we just started practicing some of the Jesus stuff in our neighborhood. And one of the things that we found was uh, that one day I was, had gone to a Home Depot to, to grab something. And it was a scene that I'd seen dozens of times. I mean, uh, guys go to Home Depot, right? So it's like, you make up excuses to go to Home Depot. It's like the adults' toys are us. At least the tool section is. And so I used to break tools so I could go get a new one, you know. <laughs> oh, well, baby, I don't know. I can't fix that. But <laughs> Home Depot's got a sale on a new compound miter saw. But so, I, you know, I, I, I go to Home Depot, and, and I, something I've seen tons of times going there, I see a truck, a pickup truck sitting there with a sign on Home Depot uh, renting the truck by the hour. But it hit me, I thought, first, I, I thought, now, I grew up in Texas. I'm from Texas. Everybody has a truck. I mean, there's trucks everywhere. Lived in Kansas City for several years at this point, and 
Kansas City is Fort Worth North. It's a, it's a cow town. I mean, and it's, there's cowboys. I mean, everybody has trucks. Every street you can look, and you're going to see pickup trucks somewhere. I mean, that's pretty much in most of America, but it's really heavy there. So I thought, what a shame that guys, people have to show up and rent a truck because they don't have a neighbor that would loan them a truck. Or they don't have a friend. They don't have someone that they could. And so it, it, it I, so I started doing all this research. It, it ended up being part of what went into this book that John was talking about um, called Next Door As It Is In Heaven. Because it, it took me on this thread. You know how sometimes you'll start, you know, chasing something and you hit this link and then you hit that link and you hit that link. What's well, the same way in research? And so you start on these little rabbit trails and sometimes they end up as something and sometimes they don't. Well, I started kind of thinking about consumerism and wanting to study and I'd studied some of that stuff years ago for another research project I did but so I like go all in like okay I want to find out the history of American marketing what's behind all this and it was just amazing it was an amazing couple years of research of looking at the history of American marketing and one of the things I found out was in the in the 1920s in the 1920s I used to would say the Walmart of the day, but let's say the Amazon of the day. What was the Amazon of the day in the 1920s? Anyone want to guess? Exactly, Sears and Roebuck. And the website was the Sears and Roebuck catalog, right? So every household in America had a fresh copy of the Sears and Roebuck catalog, and every outhouse had last year's copy <laughs> of the Sears and Roebuck catalog. So they supplied everything for it. I mean, they were just... Literally, the Amazon of the day. Roebuck was kind of the genius behind it. Uh, these two guys, the way they got to know each other, Sears worked on a, uh, had worked on a train at a train station, and someone had left a box of of new watches. They'd gotten lost, and and no one ever claimed it. And Sears took them, and he's like, well, "I'll just start selling these suckers." <laughs> so he's like, sells these watches out. And he orders some more, and he sells those. And then every once in a while, a watch would come back for repair. Roebuck was a watch repairman. And that's how the peanut butter and the chocolate got together. So they, they, they start saying, well, let's, maybe we ought to sell some other stuff, too. And so in no time, you got Sears and Roebuck Empire. Well, Roebuck is always thinking, thinking, thinking. So Roebuck's looking at the typical American family. And the typical American family is like is the is the way that lived in in housing the way that still so many cultures still live, uh, which is a pretty smart way to live. Is as the family grew, and as marriages start happening among the children, they just build another room onto the house, or they'd go up, or that, and 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 so much happened because of that the family stayed together. Grandparents were close. Right now. The average uh, young family lives 200 miles away from the grandparents in America. That's, that's, that's on average. And so we've lost so much because of this. We've, we've lost the, the wisdom of the elders. We've lost the stress reliever of a grandma and a grandpa being close. We've, there's just so much that's been lost. And it's why we're the most therapeutic culture on the face of the country, too. I think it has a lot to do with our loneliness and our isolation and the fact that, that, that we don't feel like we can do life 
alone, which we can't. We're made to be in community, but the communities are we're disconnected. And a lot of this has to do with consumerism. If you live in a suburb, you probably know what I'm talking about when it comes to how many of your neighbors do you know? How many neighbors do you know well? How many meals have you shared together with your neighbors in the last year, if ever? Okay, life's not made to be that way. The Lord didn't create us to live that way. He, he created us to be in connection with people. And the reason that a lot of Christians don't even know, the, the reason that we have to have so many courses on witnessing and on evangelism and we have all these tools, oh, here's, here, okay, you, you, you show this diagram to get a person to cross the chasm and understand you've got a real problem, you've got sin, you're a cigarette-sucking sinner and you're in trouble and you're going to hell and there's a gap. But if you pray this prayer, you can get in. We'll barcode you to get the pass to heaven. And we have all that stuff because we don't have a relationship with people. So it, a lot of that stuff is just pseudo stuff for the fact that we just are not connected with people. So I'm just looking at a lot of this stuff and started looking at consumers and saying, what does that have to do with all this? Well, Roebuck looks and says, you remember the Waltons? Anybody remember the Waltons? Maybe a few of us remember the Waltons. For the young people in here. Uh, so it's a show back in the 70s, this depression area family in West Virginia. And so seven kids, grandma and grandpa still live there. They're all together. You know, Mary Ellen, Jim Bob, John Boy, you know, on and on and on. Well, you know, so everything in the house, they've probably got from Sears. You know, they got the radio, they got the sewing machine, they got the stove and all that, but they only have one of them, that's all they need, right? Because everybody lives together. Roebuck says, if we can get Jim Bob and John Boy and Mary Ellen to move out and get their own place, then guess what? We, don't have, we won't sell one radio, we'll sell seven radios to those Walton's kids. right? We'll sell seven sewing machines, we'll sell seven lawnmowers. We'll, how can we do this, how can we do this, how can we do this? Roebuck says we need to give affordable housing the, the Sears home, the Sears kit home. In fact, our neighborhood in Kansas City had lots of Sears. They were phenomenal. I mean, they're still standing. They're great craftsman homes. And so, but they made them affordable. And here's the deal. Most people thought, well, you know, Sears is really, they're selling those homes because they want to make a lot of money on the homes. The money was not in the homes. The money was in the stuff to put in the homes. The houses were the iPod. The Sears catalog was the iTunes store. Seriously, this, this was the whole idea behind it. Yeah, we get them in affordable housing so they can just get the iPod, then we'll, they'll keep coming back for more stuff, more stuff, more stuff. Brilliant. The thing is, then other marketers started catching on, and they created this deal. Went back and found the research for it. They created this whole idea. Marketers said, we have to get the American psyche to believe that you're not successful and it's not normative if everyone doesn't have their own house. And they created this myth called, what do we call it? What will we call it? What will we call it? The American dream. Yeah, that's got a ring to it. The American dream. Home ownership. Everyone gets their own place. Because if everyone will get their own place, then they're going to need stuff to fill that place up. So there's a sociologist named Peter Block has written a lot of really good stuff. And, and there's this one story where he's talking about it's a, it's a spring afternoon or spring morning, and he's walking down the sidewalk through his neighborhood, and he, and he, he lived in the suburbs. 
and he's, a lot of garage doors were open, and he says he's just not glancing in these garage doors. He's noticing it, something caught his uh, attention. He noticed in almost every garage there was one of these uh, fertilizer, like a Scott's fertilizer spreader. Then on these little postage stamp lawns, twice a year, people are using for 10 minutes. But everybody's got one. And he's going, why does everybody have one? Because they don't know each other. They don't share. Why, why, don't, we share, why don't we share stuff? It's kind of like what I was saying about the, the pickup at, at Home Depot. So th that's why indiv individualism blocks us out to the point that even our overspent and overwrought lives are really even a product of a lot of that. It's the American way of life. And so we're very stressed out. We don't have time for vacations. I mean, we're, we're, we're one of the less vacationing cultures on the face of the earth. And once again, the, 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 the invention for that is called the American work ethic. Right? Yeah, boy. So here's the thing is there are millions and millions of hours and billions and billions of vacation dollars unspent every year. And a lot of the research behind all this is because people, some people are afraid to take their vacations because they're afraid they'll lose their job or lose a promotion because you've got, you should have this great work, work ethic. And if you look in the, in, the, in the Old Testament, you'll see that the Lord actually gave a rhythm of life for us. And, and, and there was even, with all those feasts, you've heard of the feasts? There's like five feasts. So there's actually another tithe. How, much, how many of you want to hear about the other tithe? Everybody's like, mm. they're like, we got to be the cheesecake factory in about 15 minutes. Let's let's just skip that part. Okay, there there was another tithe that was commanded of the Israelites. Yeah, it was the tithe for the feasts. And the feasts, and you go back and you study the scripture, they were parties, they were vacations. And the Lord commanded the Israelites set a t set 10 percent of your income aside. To go have fun. And the scriptures even, even put like this, this, yeah, see, you had a chance right there. You're like a bunch of Baptists. You're just sitting here. So, <laughs> so, so the, even almost parenthetical, there's scripture that says, hey, by the way, if the feast is too far, if it's too far for you to travel, stay home. And the scripture says, buy anything your soul desires. Man, you want steak? Let's get steak. You know, man, you know, what you want to go to the beach for the next week and rent a condo? Take your tithe and do that. Not your regular tithe. Right, John? <laughs> this other tithe. What's the Lord saying? The Lord's saying life is meant to be lived. Life is meant to be lived. Step into life. The Lord knows how life works, and he engineered it, and he gave it to us, but we fall into all this cultural stuff, all these cultural norms and everything that, that the Lord says, why don't you try it the way that I gave it to you? And so what I, we started practicing some of this stuff in our neighborhood. And so I said, well, what would some of this look like? So I just so happened to have a, uh, a neighbor next to me that moved in six weeks after we moved in, John and Alyssa. John's a, a, a pastor of a young kind of 20-something church. He's a phenomenal worship leader. I mean, he's become one of my best friends. And so we said, we had just moved in from having a, a, a little farm in 
in Missouri, in St. Louis when we moved to Kansas City. I had a tractor and a brush hog and all this big equipment. I didn't have a, lawn, a lawnmower. And John had just moved, and he didn't have a lawnmower. And so we, we're, we're looking at some of this stuff. I said, I'm talking to him, and I'm going, man, it's pretty stupid for us both to buy a lawnmower. How about one of us buy a lawnmower, the other buy maybe a, a, a weed eater and a leaf blower? Okay. And then it came, came winter, and we were like, man, we need a snow blower. You guys don't even know what that is. But uh, there's this thing, this stuff called snow. And so, and it accumulates. And so we went in together, we got a snow blower, and then we started maintenancing together. And, and then we got to thinking the whole issue of Jesus said, Thy kingdom come, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We started looking at our neighborhood and saying, well, what would it look like for the kingdom of heaven to come upon our earth, uh, on our piece of earth as it is in heaven? Because some things you don't even need to pray about. It's very rare you'll ever hear a preacher say, some of you are praying too much. Okay? But there's some things we don't need to pray about. I mean, the scripture says, feed the widow, feed the poor. You don't have to pray about that. Oh, well, you know, and I've had people say, you know, I was thinking there's a single mom that lives across the street from me, and, you know, and my wife and I were thinking, you know, she could probably use a break, so we were thinking about maybe offering to babysit her kids, you know, some Friday night or something, give her a night off, but, you know, we just, you know, we just don't want the devil to be leading us, and, and I'm like, yeah, that sounds like Satan. <laughs> yeah, hey. Go help the single mom across the street. Go help her. I'll get you right where I want you. you know, like, what are you thinking, right? You don't have to pray about that. Go do it. Somebody, and then somebody says, oh, well, you know, the Lord wants us to be a cheerful giver. Put a smile on your face and go across the street. Be a cheerful giver, right? So just do it. So the, the, the thing is, so we started practicing this stuff, and we started looking at the prayer of Jesus. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth earth is in heaven and so i'm looking at sharon a 68 year old widowed neighbor a few houses down i'm looking uh, uh, uh across the street at our neighbor who just has lost his wife to, to alzheimer's and i'm looking and i'm seeing jess 75 years old out raking leaves i mean leaves lots of leaves we had lots of big trees in our neighborhood and i'm thinking i'm in pretty good shape and I don't think, if I'm praying that kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and I'm praying for that for my neighborhood, I don't think Jess is going to have to be raking leaves in heaven. So I need to bring heaven on earth. So John, next door to me, is 15 years younger than me. I need to get John to go over and rake, <laughs> take, our snow, uh, take our leaf blower over there. <laughs> Right, see, that's the wisdom of old guys. It's delegation, right? So, 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 but seriously, that's what we started doing. We started saying, okay, situations like this, single moms, older people, people that don't have help, whatever, we're going to bring heaven on earth to them. We're going to do what we can. In the tr in, and if, if I had time, I would tell you, but even better than that, you can just go buy the book because we full of stories and full of practicality, practical things that we started learning how to do that literally transformed our neighborhood. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you just something really quick, put the wrap on it. Um, can't go through all this, but seriously. And I, you know, John asked me, hey, did you bring any books? I, don't, I feel really creepy bringing books. It just, 
feel like a salesman, but we just sell. Guys like me, I don't make anything on books, I'm telling you. Unless you write the shack or purpose-driven or something, you do not make, you don't get anything on books. So, but we just want to get the ideas out there. So that's, that, that's why we write the books is to get the ideas out there. But I love this passage, especially out of the message paraphrase. Don't you love that? It's talking to the Israelites, to the people of God. You will use the old rubble of past lives to build a new, rebuild the foundation from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, and make the community livable again. Should that not be who we are? Should that not be who evangelicals are known as? How are evangelicals known in America right now? Are we known as this type of people? Usually we're known for, oh, those are the homophobes, those are the judgmental people, those are the screaming, protesting people. Man, we should be the people be making the communities livable again. We should be the repairs of the breach or the restorer of paths to dwell in, amen? That's the people that God sent us to be. So let me give you something really practical. Let me give you an assignment. Skip to that first, uh, the, the next to last slide. Just jump ahead to that, the next to the last slide. So here's what happened. So um, I had a, had a friend in Lexington, Kentucky that uh, started telling us this whole story about that they were in this group that did these cornbread Mondays, they called it. And they, they, this, there was a lady, she wasn't even Christian, but she told her husband, I want to get to know more of my neighbors, and so I'm going to start a potluck dinner based around cornbread. It's Lexington, Kentucky. It's the South. And so... She said, I'm going to invite neighbors to start coming to a potluck, and we're going, to, we're going to do it around cornbread and around meals that work around cornbread. Well, they've been doing it for about 10 years, and our friends have been a part of it for about five years, and they're just telling us about what it had done in their whole neighborhood and all these changed lives and connections and everything. And these were non-Christians that started this stuff. And so I talked to my wife. I said, hey, let's try that cornbread thing. And we've gotten to know a lot of our neighbors, but how about if we try it? And she goes, yeah, well, let's, I don't want to do it every Monday. Let's try it once a month. Once again, she's an introvert. I'm like, hey, let's do it lunch, dinner, breakfast, let's, you know. <laughs> and so, so I, she said, yeah, let's try it. So this gal, I, I, I got some information. I found this gal had actually kind of uh, gotten a following and created a website. So I found these rules that she had posted. Uh, if I can get this thing to go, there we go. So she, she posted these rules, and she made a flyer up, and she passed them out when she made her invites. And there they are. You can bring anything or anyone you like. You don't have to bring anything or anyone. You can bring a bottle or a dish, no program, no agenda. Just eat, talk, laugh, and trade stories. No RSVPs necessary. All are welcome. That's how she started it. So I went on the app nextdoor.com. Anybody use nextdoor.com? Because you should. If you love your neighbor as yourself. So, no, nextdoor.com is great because basically it's a, it's, a, it's a website that connects in smaller areas your neighborhood. So you can put your cross street in there and you can join a group of people that have joined. And it's kind of like a, almost a Craigslist Facebook combo for a neighborhood. So like in my neighborhood, you could not lose a dog. If you want to get rid of a cat, you better go to another neighborhood because anything that um, people are posting within minutes. Hey, we saw, you know, a brown Yorkie, you know, and, and so, or people will say, does anyone know a good plumber? I have a couch for sale or whatever. So that's kind of what uh, nextdoor.com is for. So I went on nextdoor.com and I posted, I told the story real quick in a couple of paragraphs and I posted these rules. 
And I said, hey, is anyone out there interested in doing something like this? It was amazing because in the next few hours, my uh, email box just blows up. And these literally, when we put this in the book, we, these are straight answers or, or replies that, from people just, yes, we would love to do something like that. Let us know. Let, if you do this, let us know. We want to get to know more people. This would be great. I mean, dozens of emails from neighbors. And so, uh, you know, later that day, well, these came in over two or three days. I started getting these. And so we set a date for a couple of weeks later. We started on a Wednesday night. I said, okay, we're going to try it. We reposted the rules. We replied to everybody that had replied to us. We put it back out on nextdoor.com again. So that day comes, my wife, she's a, she's a master gardener and an incredible cook also, and so she's making cornbread everything. I mean, it's like, it's, it, it looked like hee-haw in our living room by that time, you know, and jalapeno cornbread, gluten-free cornbread, cornbread muffins, cornbread sticks, um, cornbread popsicles, no. But, I mean, it's just everything. So anyway, she's got this all rocking and rolling and ready. And so at uh, about five minutes till 7, was when we were going to start, and I, so I'm kind of getting seller's remorse at this point because I'm starting to kind of think through what have we done here, and I'm thinking, well, man, what if nobody shows up? And then I'm thinking, man, I'm going to be giving cornbread away for because Sherry's an introvert, so I'll have to get rid of this cornbread. <laughs> so I'm thinking, uh, and, but then I had a I had a real horrifying thought at a at one minute till seven. I thought, whoa, what if worse than no one showing up? What if just like one creepy, stocky neighbor shows up? You know, one real lonely, lonely, lonely person shows up. And uh, then I'm really freaking out. It's a minute till 7. I went to tell Sherry. I said, look, here's the deal. I said, at three minutes after 7, if no one's here, I'm turning the porch light out, drawing the drapes, and we're going to hide in the bedroom. And we're just saying, well, we thought no one came. So, but 7 o'clock, ding dong. Open the door, and it's Bill from across the street standing there with a bottle of wine. Hey, come on in, Bill. And behind him, there's a gal coming up the steps I'd never met before. Um, gal in her early uh, 50s. She had come to find out she's never been married, but she, she's holding this one, the most beautiful cake I'd ever seen in my life. And come to find out she's a professional baker. <laughs> yes, Jesus. <laughs> and, 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 and she, and, and she it, it ended up, ended up, uh, as we started moving through uh, the first year in particular, I mean, she, she would let the guys, we could place orders for what she would make for the next time. Anyway, it was great. But here's the thing. Within 20 minutes after 7, I looked around my house, and it was packed, not only with the neighbors that I knew, but there were 15 new stranger neighbors that were standing in our kitchen and living room. And it was vibrant. It was just... Isn't this great? Yeah, and I'm hearing people say, I've lived here for 20 years. I've lived here for eight years. I've lived here for six months. I haven't known anybody. I felt so bad and blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You live across the street from me, don't you? I felt bad we haven't met. Oh, I felt the same way. I'm so sorry. Isn't this great? It's like, I'm, I'm like, man, this is amazing. So we, so I'm like, okay, well, that was good. You know, one time, well, what's going to happen? We'll see what happens next month because you launch anything. Church planners will launch, and they'll start a church, and they'll go, yeah, we had 200 people on our first Sunday. How many did you have the next Sunday? Well, we had 14. 
you know. So I'm thinking, what's going to happen the next time? Well, the next time, literally every single person that came the first time showed up, and there were five more. The third month, all those showed up, and there were five more. By the third month, it was just like everybody knew each other already. And, they're, they're, and so everybody starts kind of taking the deal over. Well, hey, listen, w- let's do a progressive. Let's, let's do a progressive deal at Christmas. We'll have a Christmas party. We'll do a progressive from house to house to house. And then somebody says, yeah, let's do a Halloween party. And we'll, I mean, it's just like, it's just like I just added water, and this thing just, you know, Chia Pet, you know, it just like <laughs> takes off, man. It just goes. And I'm like, this is the easiest thing I have ever done. It's the easiest thing I ever done. And then part of the study, and we talk about this in the book, I started looking at Jesus around food, Jesus around meals. Come to find out the book of Luke is what scholars would call the most evangelistic and salvific gospel. In other words, you see more evangelistic encounters and more uses of the word save and salvation in in Luke than anywhere else. Interestingly enough, there's 14 encounters of Jesus around meals with people. I, I think that there's something there. Especially when Jesus says the Son of Man came eating and drinking. <laughs> and you call him a wine bibber and a glutton. But then at the end, Jesus goes, hey, do this in remembrance of me. Eat and drink. And we say, okay, we'll get a thimble. We'll pour unfermented grape juice because it wasn't fermented, by the way, Baptist. So, uh, and, and we'll get a corner of a cracker, right? And we'll say, eat and drink. We've obliterated the love feast that the early church had. They ate, amen? They ate stuff, meat, barbecue. Listen, I lived in Kansas City for the last seven years. Barbecue. Listen, you, you guys go out in your backyard, and you get that gas grill, and you go, I'm barbecuing. You're not barbecuing. You're grilling. It ain't barbecuing. We can talk after the service. Anyway, it's a pet peeve of mine. So anyway, the Lord says feast. Have you ever heard of this thing called the wedding supper of the lamb? So here's the thing. There's something that happens around food. There's something. The word companion means to break bread together, us to break bread together. There's something powerful that happens around meals. And the greatest evangelistic tool that we have is not some little diagram or it's not the Rubik's Cube for Jesus. It's not The greatest tool that we have is probably our kitchen table. It's probably, it's probably the, the table at Starbucks or it's the table at, at, your, at, at In-N-Out, whatever. Do meals with people. Invite people together. Amen? It's the easiest thing we can do. So our neighborhood, literally, a year later, I'm standing around at a cornbread supper one night, and I'm just listening to conversations. And there's a couple over here. There's two couples over here. They're just talking about the night before how they had gone to uh, the Performing Arts Center together. This couple, they didn't know each other before cornbread suppers. There's three other guys over here um, planning on, yeah, hey, on Saturday, I'll show up at 7 or wherever. I go, what are you guys doing? And, and they're like, oh, well, uh, you know, me and Jeff are going to go over and, and help Steve. He's, he's bought a new, uh, or he's bought a used uh, refrigerator from somebody, and they need to borrow my truck. And so that's three guys. We're going to go over and load it up, and we're going to take it over to Jeff's. Three guys didn't know each other before cornbread suppers. Talking to, one day I'm talking to a, 
There's a few of us talking to a single neighbor, single gal, uh, single mom. She, and things were tight for her financially, and it was like April 4th or something. And she, she just said, oh, man, I hate tax season. She goes, she goes there's, there's another $90. I don't know where it's going to come from. Get my taxes done. Well, as soon as I hear Lori say that, what am I thinking about? Bill. I said, hey, Lori, I might be able to help you out with that. And, I, and, and so I left. I walked down the block, knock on the door. Hey, Bill. Hey, tell him, hey, there's a single mom down the street, Lori. Um, I don't know if you've ever met her. No, I never met her. I said, blah, 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 blah. Hey, is there any chance that you would be willing to help her on her taxes? Oh, man, I'd love to. And, and I'm like, well, I need to connect you. He goes, well, is she at home right now? Yeah, let's go. Hey, Laurie. Hey, this is Bill, IRS guy. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, 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 no. He's, <laughs> no, he's, no, he's going to help you do your taxes. A former IRS. Right. What happens here? I don't just save Lori 90 bucks, but a year later, Lori and Bill are buddies. They're friends. We're weaving the neighborhood together. We're making the community livable again. Amen? It's not rocket science. The whole issue here is who will be the neighbor. And Jesus says, do this and you will live. Do this and you will enter. And I'm telling you, there's something about these stories, they don't just make good filler stories or nice, oh, well, that felt good when we heard that story or whatever. It's life. And the thing about the broken or the poor or whatever, people that we deal with, Jesus in the least of these, we think we're helping people. The gift that they give back to us is far beyond. There's something spiritual and mystical that happens. And this is why I see Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. See, we read that and think, well, what does that mean? Because something incredibly happens when you identify with the poor and the broken. Something phenomenal happens on the inside of us. Why? Because Jesus said, if you give a cup of cold water to this person, you've done it to me. I mean, this is the scariest scriptures to me in the New Testament are not in Revelation. It's when Jesus said, here's what it's going to look like at the end. There's going to be two groups, sheep and goats. And the big question, the, the big issue is going to be, I'm going to say, hey, you know, I was thirsty, and you gave me a cup of cold water. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was in prison, and you came and visited me. Man, when, Jesus? I was in, remember when you did this on June the 4th, 2006? Yeah, that was me and that little girl. That was me. You did it to me. And then on the other hand, you didn't do it. You didn't. Man, when did I ignore you, Jesus? See, we put these little memes out on Facebook. Oh, if you don't pass this along, you're denying Jesus. Oh. I just like, oh, don't even. Oh, man. I mean, I get, I get defriended a lot so, on Facebook. I'm just like, this, this stuff, oh, yeah, because you click on this meme and you pass it, or if you don't, you're denying Jesus. Come on. It ain't that easy. No, Jesus can go, hey, on June the 14th, 2011, I was in this guy, and you denied me. See, now that's the scary stuff. That's the scary stuff. Because Jesus is saying, this is what the life is all about, amen? 
So I just want to encourage you, and I just want to pray a prayer for you this morning as we close. Lord, you are the creator of the universe, and I just marvel so many, so often, and just looking at little birds or caterpillars, much less the giant redwoods and the ocean waves as they break on the rocks and just the beauty of your unfathomable, unspeakable creativity. And you live in us. We have the mind of Christ and we can't think outside of our little boxes of how to live this Jesus-following life out. So God, we say forgive us, but, but more than that, we say flood us with the Creator. And so I pray for every man and woman, every boy and girl in here this morning, that you would stir up the creativity on the inside of us, that you would open our eyes to not just see crowds, but to see individuals, and to see what's going on around us, and to hear the Holy Spirit's nudging, and hear your ingenuity too of how you would have us connect and be neighbors to others and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves and enter into that Zoe life that you want us all to enter into. Pray that for everyone in Jesus' name. Amen.